And in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the catechism memory work. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. And the Bible memory work. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians 11:26. All right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, so uh, we're continuing along with the uh, table of duties in the catechism. And just by uh, way of review... The table of duties is this literally kind of a table or a chart of different vocations with Bible verses. And we talked about this uh, as kind of a application of the Ten Commandments, right? So, so far in Luther's small catechism, uh, we've seen that For instance, in the Lord's Prayer, you get the theology of the Lord's Prayer, but then in the section on daily prayers, you get the practical application of, okay, now how do I actually go about and implement prayer into my life? Or in the uh, Lord's Supper section on, on the Catechism, you get the theology of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of the altar, but then in Christian questions and their answers, you actually prepare uh, practically to go and receive the Lord's Supper. Well, the table of duties is kind of that practical application of the Ten Commandments and that in the Ten Commandments, we learn the theology about God's law and what God wants in our lives for us to do. 
Um, but then that's actually borne out, especially uh, the fourth through tenth commandments, the love of neighbor, and also the first through third commandments, the love of God, in relationships that we actually live out in real life, right? And that's especially connected to this, uh, the fourth commandment and this idea of ordered relationships where in the fourth commandment we learn, honor your father and your mother, that we are born into these ordered relationships that God has built into creation for our good. And uh, within those ordered relationships, um, the ones that are, uh, Luther calls here in the table of duties, right, holy orders, the ones that are uh, found in the Bible with different uh, verses going along with them, those are the ones that we're kind of studying in the table of duties as to what does the Bible say I should, how does the Bible uh, express that I should live out my life as a Christian following the Ten Commandments in these relationships. And we talked about these broad categories, too, of uh, family, church, and society, uh, these three realms of life or these three, um, what Luther in other writings calls the, the states, the three estates of life or the three realms of life where we find all these different relationships uh, that we're in, Okay. So that's kind of the table of duties at large. That's what we talked about last week. And and last week, we really only got through one um, because we had finished up some other stuff on the Lord's Supper first. And what we had gotten through was on the pastor. And we looked at 1 Timothy 3 and some of those uh, duties and also the qualifications of, of a pastor and uh, what, what people should look for in a pastor. Uh, that's especially actually pertinent today. Um, so in the church service today, we're celebrating St. James of Jerusalem. And the reason that we're doing that is the, the Senate has this initiative. I'm just, I'm going to, this is a rabbit trail, but I'm going to talk about it for a second. The, the Senate has this initiative right now called Set Apart to Serve. And it's about recruiting more church workers. Um, mainly pastors, but also organists, teachers, things like that as well. And the um, Set Apart to Serve initiative is its important because we have a severe shortage of pastors in the Senate right now. I'll talk a little bit more about this in the sermon. But um, St. James of Jerusalem is, of course, a great example of one of the first Christian pastors. Uh, so that's what the, the sermon's going to be about. So that's why it's read today. Uh, we're going to be celebrating that. Um, so it's called Set Apart to Serve Sunday. And the reason that we're doing it in October is because October is Church Worker Appreciation Month um, or Pastor Appreciation Month. So anyhow, uh, that what we talked about last week about you know what people should expect from a pastor and what the qualifications and duties of pastors are, that's especially pertinent as we think about the need for more pastors in, in the church. And so uh, kind of keep that in mind today as we continue talking. All right. Um, is there anything else I wanted to say about that? I don't think so. All right. Well, we'll talk about it more in the in the service, of course. All right. So uh, the next thing that comes in the table of duties is, uh, first of all, we get pastors, and then we get what... Uh, Luther calls what hearers owe their pastors, hearers of the word. 
right? So I kind of, I like this, right? Um, that it's not, he doesn't just say, oh, just lay people, right? Um, or people who are not pastors, as if pastors are some sort of higher class than, than other people, right? But there's, there's preachers and there's hearers, right? And these things go together, right? And there's an order to these things. And so there's the guy that preaches the word and then the person that hears the word. So I kind of like that, that title, right? The, the hearers. Now, um, of course, there's a lot we could say about what uh, the hearers or the people in the pews, so to speak, are to, to live like. And um, we'll get into some of these broader things later about how they live in their family, how they live in society, right? And at the end of the table of duties, Luther just says to everyone, right, what everyone should live like. But um, let's go ahead and, and pop up in our Bibles to some of these hearers, owing their, what their hearers owe the pastors. And I think um, it's, you know, if you take into context the history of this too. I mean, in Luther's time, you definitely had uh, things that, around the church that needed to be done. And I'm sure you had volunteers that, that took care of different things in the church. But keep in mind, this is kind of before the Industrial Revolution and for a long time, the church wasn't as business-like as it is now, right? That's that's nothing against. Uh, that's that's not to say anything against like having a church council or um, having a constitution and bylaws. In fact, I'm very favorable of those things. I think those things are very good, right, and salutary. But when Luther focuses on what what's the main thing that the people in the pews are supposed to do, it's interesting. He doesn't talk about like volunteering and being on church councils and being uh, in, you know, different positions in the church and things like that. I think that's kind of where we go when we think about, you know, what are people in the church supposed to do for the church? Um, We think about these more kind of business model type of things. Um, But he just, he, he quotes these different verses and we'll see really what they're about is about basically financially supporting the pastor. And when I say financially, even that is a little bit different because um, in Luther's time and even in uh, early American Lutheranism, as far as I know, a lot of pastors weren't paid a quote-unquote salary, you know, where they got a check every so often. It was like, hey, pastor, we slaughtered an extra pig for you so you and your family can eat this month, right? That's kind of how it went. Right, and I think especially when the Bible writes about these things, even going back—I mean, talking about Luther in the 1500s, when the when we're going back to Bible times, that's that's especially true, right? There is um, monetary gifts as well. That's certainly true, but um, I I think it's important when we read these verses we're about to read. This isn't just about like church councils and salaries. This is a lot more about the relationship between the pastor and the people. Let me put it that way. All right. So anyway, 1 Corinthians 9.14 is our first one. If I ever stop talking, I'll actually turn there. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 
In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Right. So uh, this is an important verse because it shows there are certainly pastors and people like Jake, right? For instance, uh, Vicar Bennett, I should say. We're, sp- we're supposed to call him Vicar Bennett now, okay? It's, he's not here, so we can all talk about this. Vicar Bennett, not Jake. Um, that's his title. Uh, Vicar Bennett uh, um, is one of thousands and thousands and thousands of, of pastors in the past, or future pastors in his case in the past, that have decided to be quote-unquote bivocational, right? Where they're not going to receive their main living from the gospel, but they're still going to partake in preaching the gospel. Paul did that, right? Paul was also a tent maker. So a pastor, an individual pastor, can decide, I'm going to do that for the good of the gospel, for the good of the church, right? But the church should never ask a pastor to do that, right? That should be the decision of the pastor, right? But ideally, uh, the church should want to support a pastor um, to be full-time, right? That's, That's the idea here. In the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel, they should receive their living from the gospel, right? Um, This also goes back to Acts, right, where you have um, the apostles who are preaching, um, but they have to uh, appoint some elders, right? Um, In some sense, even that it's kind of more complicated in Acts because we have a different uh, church polity structure than they did in Acts, but um, that they appoint appoint basically some lower-level clergy to be to wait on tables, right? So that they don't have to wait on tables. That's the idea. Um, but the guys who are focused on full-time ministry are focused on full-time ministry, right? Um, this also should show you that, uh, and I, I don't think anyone legitimately thinks this, but I'm sure there are some people out there that think this, not anyone in this room, that um, pastors only work on Sunday, right? Have you ever heard that, right? It's it's not true. <laughs> um I, I think recently I've been putting in about 50 hours a week. So if, if you want to, I, I can track my hours. I can tell you what I do um, week in and week out. But uh, there, it is a full-time job, right, at a, at a certain point. Um, now, it's, it's possible to uh, limit some of that and to get away with less. But um, ideally, I think the, the ministry is some, something that's supposed to be full-time, um, if it can be. So that's one verse. Uh, Galatians 6, 6 to 7. We, can, and we, can, we don't have to spend too much time on all of these. Right? Um, very similarly, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And this is one of those stewardship verses too, right? So this... Um, really, one of the things that we're talking about with, with what hearers owe their pastors is really general stewardship, that the uh, people who make up the congregations of the church, the hearers of the pastors, that they should steward, and, and notice it says here, all good things, right? Not just money, not just time, right? Not, not just skills, but all the thing, all the gifts which God has given you in your life, um, they should be shared with the church, right? Um, with the church and, and then with the pastor. And the pastor is not excluded from that too, right? Because the pastor is also a member, right? Um, the, pa- the pastor also should be tithing and should be 
um, helping volunteer at the volunteer days and things like that too, right? So uh, that we share, if you go back to Acts 2, right, when they, when the, the New Testament church is just there in its infant stage, what does it say? They shared all good things together, right? They shared all, all that they had together. It's kind of communal living, right? Um, which maybe was a bit extreme, but that's that's what they were doing. <laughs> so uh, we can keep going through some of these too. First Timothy five seventeen through eighteen. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Uh, for the scripture says, "Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain." And the worker deserves his wages, right? Um, that I this one is um, I, I like this thing about don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Um, it was it's been it's been funny to me before, um, and not I'm not gonna name any particular churches or anything, but I've I've been at churches before where you know you have like I, I you know I've you'll preach a, a sermon all about the gospel and what the scriptures have to say about something on a certain day and you'll uh, be really excited about the ministry that's happening in a certain place or in a certain way and about how people's souls are being changed and and all these things and you know, Although it was such a great service, we all got to receive the Lord's Supper and, and and these types of things. And then after church, it'll just be complaints about like the air conditioning being too low and uh, the uh, you know the the price of of this or that thing going up, and we need to deal with this. And uh, what are we going to do about the water heater and and all these things? And um, it's. It's funny when when pastors have to deal with stuff like that. Uh, th- this is kind of what I think of, right? Um, that the purpose of, at when, whenever we think about who we are as church and what we should be doing as church, we we always have to keep the gospel central, right? The ox's job is to tread the grain, right? To keep his nose to the plow and tread the grain, right? And um, that's what the pastors of the church should be doing, right? They should be preaching and teaching and evangelizing and ministering, right? And um, there's, there's, it's, it's always funny when people want to distract from that, right? It's, it's, I say funny because it's funny at the how silly a lot of the things are, right? That get, that seem to try and get in the way of the ox treading out the grain, but um, so it is, all right. <laughs> um, Anyhow, First Thessalonians, yeah, go ahead. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. You need to be otherworldly and thinking about right. visiting people and, and saving souls and not about who's our HVAC contract. Right. Right. So, yeah, so that, that 
provision is good for yeah. everybody. Yeah, and those things are good. Yeah, yeah, it's good for everybody. It's a good point. And we do need to worry about stuff like that, too. Um, it's just funny when people complain. Well, yeah, but everybody's not complaining. Right. It's an insulating... Right, yeah. I just say that's not my job. Go go talk to this guy. Yeah, yeah. Right. 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 It is. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Go talk to Roth. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. We haven't had that role here because we haven't had a pastor. Right. But, but now, no, I, pre- I really appreciate that. I think that's great. We, we yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what's always funny to me is the, uh, that's, that's why I keep chuckling, is just, it, the, uh, it's, I'm not, I'm not saying this, ever, this really happens here that much. It really doesn't. But um, in other churches I've been to before, that especially the receiving line is always funny. If you get certain comments, you know, like, did you listen to the sermon? Like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's how it goes. That's fine. I understand. Um, and then First uh, Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. Um, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you, hold them in the highest regard, and love because of their work, live in, live in peace with each other. So uh, this is a good verse because I, so I always find it difficult to talk about the role of pastors in the church, not because um, it's not clearly in the Bible. I mean, I think the scriptures are very clear about who pastors are and, and everything. I mean, there's all these verses about pastors in the Bible, but obviously it's like, I don't want to sit here and talk about myself, right? But um, it's good that the Bible reminds everybody uh, that pastors should be held in high regard. And the reason for this, I, I think, really is because part of the pastor's job is to call people out, right? Part of the pastor's job is to rebuke. And that can obviously cause problems, right? You're obviously going to have people who, when they're rebuked or corrected, um, they're going to fight back against that, right? And and they might even, uh, you know, persecute, not, not to be too intense about it, but, I mean, these things really happen, uh, you know, decide to try and persecute the pastor, right? Um, because, oh, I didn't, I can't believe the pastor. So I'll give you a practical example. Um, I had a, I have a friend who, I won't name any names since this this will be on the internet, but uh, who has a church in a place somewhere in America, and there was a lady who he when he got there he he had cleaned up the church roster and um this uh lady refused to answer his phone calls and and 
and so on and so forth, and, and eventually made it clear she didn't want to be a part of the church anymore, right? So he ended up removing her from the roster, no big deal. Um, she wasn't a part of the church anymore. Well, anyway, then she died, and the the daughter was like, you have to do my mom's funeral. And he was like, that's fine. I'll come do a service in the funeral home, um, but our funeral policy is the, that we don't have funerals inside the church sanctuary if they're not a member, and, except in maybe special circumstances or cases. And um, the, the, the daughter started a Google review campaign against the church, right, and against him personally and wrote op-eds in the newspaper and all of this stuff, right? Um, but he, he was just trying to be faithful. He's just doing, you know, doing the right thing and, and said, look, the, the, this church space, the sanctuary, this is for Christian funerals. Your mom was not a member of a Christian church. I'll do, the, I'll do a service for you at the funeral home, but we're not going to do it inside the church. It's part of our confession. And um, anyway, but he got you know, persecuted for that, right? So um, this is why even as a pastor, I don't want to sit up here and talk about myself, yeah, but the... Uh, it's important that the people in the church are reminded um, that pastors should be held in, in regard because one of the things they have to do is sometimes tell people no, right? Tell people that's wrong, you got to repent, right? Uh, all sorts of things. And that can um, become a difficult thing, right? So Paul here encourages live, live in peace with each other, right? Um, and if you go down a couple verses, right? Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and, and everyone else, right? So anyway, um, luckily I haven't had any situations like that yet, but we'll see. I probably just haven't been pastor long enough. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Sometimes, some, sometime I'll really make someone mad. I don't know. I've made people mad, but not really mad yet. So we'll see. Um, Hebrews 13, 17. Oh, going the wrong way. This is the last one. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep uh, watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And that's the same thing we just kind of talked about there, that... Uh, one of the things that the pastors have to do is hard, right? And so it's good if their work is a joy, not a burden. But then secondly, on top of that, it's not like we have the option as pastors to uh, not do those things either, right? To not rebuke and exhort and correct because we have to give an account before God on the last day, right? We talked about that with closed communion as well, that... Um, some of the hard things that we have to do, it's, well, because we have to be faithful above all. And so um, it's no advantage to the person who, who doesn't, who, who disobeys, right, who uh, kicks against uh, the pastor in that way, right? Um, I, this would be a good point for me to also say this, is that with all of these relationships, that there's also time for what we'd call like civil disobedience, right? So all these verses are like, hey, you know, your pastor's trying to do the right thing. You need to listen to him. If your pastor tells you to sin, don't listen to him, right? This, this, is, this is almost too obvious. I don't need to say it. 
But sometimes um, people read these verses and and come away with the conclusion, oh, this is this is way too authoritarian for me, right? Um, I can't just be under someone's authority like that. Well, as we already saw in the verses about the pastor, the pastor has qualifications and has duties that he has to fulfill, right? So as long as the pastor is fulfilling those duties and meets those qualifications, yes, the hearer should listen to him. But if he's not fulfilling those duties or not meeting those qualifications, then the hearers don't need to listen to him about those things, right? So this is the same thing with like parents and children or the government and citizens. The people in charge, whoever they are, if it's the parents in charge of the children or the government um, governing the city or whatever the case may be, they have certain limits and duties, right? And if they go outside of those limits or they don't fulfill those duties, it's not on the uh, person who's under them to just obey them no matter what, right? So if a, if a parent tells a child to sin, it's okay for the ch- child to disobey because as the, it's clear in Acts 5, right? Uh, we must obey God rather than men, right? So we always have to obey God first. And we'll talk about this more with the government and citizens, but there is time for civil disobedience. And that goes with pastors and congregations too. Like if the pastor is preaching heresy, the congregation needs to kick that guy out, right? And get a different pastor. So um, that's a good important caveat that I didn't include already is one of the things the hearers should do is, uh, as Paul encourages, test every spirit. Right? If anyone preaches to you a gospel different than has been taught to you, even a quote-unquote angel from heaven, then, then knock the dust off your feet and get out of there. Right? So uh, that's an important caveat. All right. Moving on then. Any, any questions on any of that? All right. Uh, the, of civil gov- government, we'll look at Romans uh, 13 and... I'll just go ahead and read one through seven because you have um, one through four in this government and then five through seven in the citizens. Okay. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right. So what we learn in this is that the government has two main jobs. The government's two main jobs are to preserve peace. And we could also say to promote goodness, which would be the kind of the same thing. 
and to punish wickedness. That's that's Romans 13, 1 through 5 in summary, right? Um, and and Paul even asked this question, this kind of rhetorical question, right? As a citizen, if you don't want to be afraid of being punished, what should you do? Don't be wicked, right? And if you are good, if you're peaceful, you will be rewarded, right? So he kind of Paul when he when he's talking about this, he's almost talking about this in like the ideal, right? Because of course, what's what's funny is we know, right? Paul uh, lives even in the time of of a government that's persecuting Christians, right? And he know his government is not actually doing this. Right, but he says this is what the idea of a government. Right, this is the idea of government, is that um, they're established by God to do these things. So that's the first important point. The second important point to to note there um, is what I just said that they're established by God. Right, government is at government as this idea is established by God, and that means we're not anarchists. Right. Um, so there's a lot of range of political thought, right, in America and around the world and throughout history. But so when, whenever we speak about what the Bible says about government, we have to speak in kind of broad terms and, and to exactly what this would look like. But what we can say is we're not anarchists, right? And the reason we're not anarchists is very simple, is... Because someone has to punish wickedness. There has to be a sword, right? This is what uh, Paul says, is they do not bear the sword in vain, right? Uh, what verse is that? It's in here somewhere. Oh, yeah, uh, verse 4. Um, For he is God's servant to do you good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing in vain. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer, right? To punish wickedness. That's that's the idea. And why does there have to be a sword? Why does there have to be law enforcement? Well, because if someone does something that's wrong, right? If someone's a rapist murderer or something, right? And I go to them and I say, hey, God's law says this is wrong. You've broken the fifth and sixth commandments. You need to repent. What is it likely that they're going to do? They're just going to spit in my face. right? What do they care? They're wicked. right? Assuming this person's not a Christian, and this person, if they are a Christian, uh, has just become a Christian because, uh, or has just become a Christian again, because whenever they went out and started raping and murdering people unrepentantly, they lost their faith, right? Um, this is so Luther talks about this in terms of um, two kingdoms. So he says there's a left hand kingdom and a right hand kingdom. And God establishes both kingdoms. These are God's hands, right? And the left-hand kingdom is the kingdom of the world, or the government in that sense. 
And the right-hand kingdom is the kingdom of the church. And the way that things happen in these kingdoms happens differently. Now, they're both gods, kingdoms. But in the right-hand kingdom, in the church, if someone sins, and this goes back to pastor and hearers, right? If someone sins, and I, and I preach to them, and I say, hey, this was a sin. You need to repent and, and receive the forgiveness that Christ has for you. What's that, what's that person going to do? They're going to say, Pastor, you're right. I've sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. Please forgive me, right? Pronounce God's forgiveness unto me. That's what a person in the right-hand kingdom is going to do, right? That's not going to work in the left-hand kingdom. It's not going to work, right? I can go out to the streets and preach as much as I want about how we need to stop raping, murdering, and stealing, uh, how we need to stop murdering babies and, and all sorts of stuff. I can, I can go out and preach till I'm blue in the face. It's not going to stop people from doing it, right? So what stops wickedness in the left-hand kingdom? It's the sword, right? It's law enforcement. It's having a government that has just laws that can be enforced with force, right? This is why um, Luther believed in the law of lesser magistrates, uh, where, for instance, you know, he, was, he had this warrant out for his arrest um, whenever he went against the Roman Catholic Church, and his local prince, his local elector, um, protected him and hid him away. And um, Luther's argument as to why that was right and good was that, one, that was not a just law, and he was right to disobey it. Secondly, um, his local governor, who was closer to him and knew better himself and the situation, um, was seeking to preserve peace and punish wickedness, and he's the one who bared the sword, right? He's the one who was able to enforce or not enforce that law, right? And that we all know this is this ha- this has to simply be true at a most basic human level is that if a law is not enforced, it's not really a law, right? Unless someone's willing to arrest you and throw you in jail, then it's not really a law, right? Um, or you know at least write you a ticket or something, right? If there's no enforcement of the law, then this is why we have law enforcement. It's not really a law, right? This happened with the uh, masks during COVID all the time, right? So in DeSoto County, the governor down in Jackson says, "Hey, uh, DeSoto County has to be masked, masked up, executive order, right?" And the sheriff says, <laughs> "No, <laughs> right? It's not a law, right? Um, I mean that's built within the Constitution of the United States, not." Not, not even to speak about scripture, but um, and not to get too far into political theory, but that is, uh, this is why Paul has to say this, right? The the governor doesn't bear the sword in vain. Um, this is at the at the root of it. This is what the Bible describes as government is someone who is able to bear the sword to punish wickedness and to promote peace. To promote peace. Okay. So. Um, I could gas off about this for a lot longer, but uh, let, let me get back to the, the meat of the matter here. So civil government's job, according to the Bible, is to preserve peace and, and punish wickedness, um, to, to threaten the, the wrongdoer, and to promote peace. And this uh, God establishes this not only – why does God establish this? 
for one, God establishes this so that we don't have a bunch of um, wicked people running around the streets as, you know, in, in anarchy with things being in chaos, right? He establishes his world to be a certain order. Um, God's a God of order, not of chaos. But secondly, he establishes this, uh, the left-hand kingdom, for the good of the right-hand kingdom. Because what happens whenever wickedness is punished and peace is preserved, it means that we can preach the gospel, right? It means that the gospel can go forth and uh, that I'm not going to be persecuted or punished uh, for, for doing the right thing, right? And that uh, we can live at peace with our neighbors and, and witness to them and that the gospel can grow, right? So um, anyway, if you want to know more about this, uh, we can talk about this later, but um, that's, the, that's the government's job is to preserve peace and, and punish wickedness. All right. Yeah, so we're about to we're about to get to that next. <laughs> yeah, right. So again, there is a time for civil disobedience, um, and I'll give you. So I'll give you a couple. Of, I'll just we'll just do that now. We'll just do that now. Um, well, actually, no. Let's let, let's go in order. Sorry, I'm trying to decide what the best way to do this would be. All right, so um, of citizens, we already read Romans 13, 5 through 7, um, where he says, if you owe taxes, pay taxes, revenue, then revenue, so on and so forth. Uh, let's look at Matthew 22, uh, 21. And I'll uh, back up a little bit so you get the context. Um so this is about paying taxes to Caesar, and, and the, the Pharisees try and trap him. Um, I'll start at verse 18. Um, uh, okay, they ask him, well, I'll start at verse 17. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, give to Caesars what is Caesars and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Now, there's a lot. I mean, I, if you let me, I'm going to preach a whole sermon on this text. So, so I'm going to try not to do that. But um, render to Caesar what is Caesars and to God what is God's is the pertinent verse here. Well, first of all, what is God's? Everything, right? Okay. So we always have to keep that in mind that we live in the right-hand kingdom. And as people who live in the right-hand kingdom, as people who live in the church, right, um, in one sense, in one sense, there's nothing that we truly owe to Caesar, right? Because we owe everything to God. And um, we don't really need Caesar, right? This, this is what I was saying earlier is if a, if a true Christian um, struggles with some sin or has something go wrong in their family or in their society in their in their life, right they don't really need Caesar um, ideally, right that we can deal with the things inside the church right This is why Paul gives the advice if two Christians are fighting about something, um, don't let them go to court right Just get them together with their pastors. they can figure it out. 
right? Um, and and if, a, if a Christian's struggling with some sin, they know how to repent and be forgiven. They don't need to go to jail, right? Uh, so, so in one sense, uh, Christians, right, render to God what is God's. That's the most important part of this. Now, we do render to Caesar uh, certain things for the sake of of preserving peace and punishing wickedness in the world, right? So we go ahead and support the government. We go ahead and pay our taxes, right? Um, because, and this is exactly what Paul was saying in Romans 13, because that's for the good of the world, right? That's good for the good of the society being a society of peace and not of wickedness, right? We go, we go ahead and, and submit, um, you know, pay our taxes and, and submit to the government so that we're not, so that we don't have an anarchist government or an anarchist society, right? Or a communist society or whatever, right? We want uh, a peaceful and a, and a not wicked society. And, and one of the ways that, by the way, that we submit to Caesar is to help inform Caesar of what the right thing is. Because Christians... They know the law better than anyone else, right? So what is a just law? Well, a just law is a law that accords with God's will, right? Now, can we expect everyone in the left-hand kingdom to agree to that standard? Can we expect everyone in the left-hand kingdom to agree to the standard of the Bible as just law? Well, no, because they don't believe the Bible. So our best bet there is probably to try and argue with some sort of natural law Right of what um, you know we could all agree on based on you know common sense and and looking at nature, but since Christians do have the Bible and we do believe the Bible, we can and we are free uh, to tell the government and to tell the tell the world what is right and wrong, right? And we can remind people of what good laws and bad laws are, right? So that's one of the ways that we also render to Caesar. Um, and uh, this is, Luther writes this essay on whether to, whether or not a sh- soldier can be saved. And one of his questions in there is kind of whether or not a, a Christian should serve in government, right? In any kind of level. I'm th- keep thinking I'm about to sneeze. It's not coming, anyway. Um, and he says, yes, Christians should serve in government. Um, in fact, that's ideal because when Christians are in government, they are able to make just laws, not only according to natural law, but also according to the Bible, right? So that's a good thing for society because you know who the creator of the world is? God, right? You know, when God tells us how to live our lives according to the 10 commandments, that's probably good for everybody, right? So um, anyway, that's a kind of a side note. Okay, but render to God what is God's and to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes. But because God owns everything, right? What is God's? Render to God what is God's? Uh, well, the left-hand kingdom is God's too. That means that if we are ever split between 
rendering to God what is God's and rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's, we render to God first, right? We must obey God rather than men. And this gets to your question, Rod, what about a, um, the caveat of, of what about a, a wicked government, right? Or a wicked governor. And uh, I think very clearly throughout scripture, we see not only in Romans 13 and here in Matthew 22 and some of these other passages as well, which I'm not going to go through, is that it is right and salutary to disobey, to civilly disobey a wicked government. And uh, we already saw, I already said that with, with hearers and pastors too, right? Here, if, if the pastor is a heretic, the hearer should disobey him, right? If, um, if uh, parents are trying to make their children sin, right, the children should disobey their parents. If the government is trying to make the citizen sin, then the, the citizen should disobey the government, right? And we see scriptural examples of this. Um, I'll just run through a couple. Uh, one is like the Egyptian midwives, right? The Pharaoh tells the Egyptian, um, the, um, sorry, the Israelite midwives in Egypt, he tells the Israelite midwives to, to murder the baby boys and they lie to him and say, oh, we couldn't get there in time, right? Um, David, when David is being persecuted by Saul, Jonathan lies to Saul about where David is. And that's not only disobeying his father, but that's also disobeying the king, right? And uh, he, he lies to the king and deceives the king, all right? Um, th- those are a couple of examples. But the, another thing I'll, I'll just point out really quickly too, that especially in America, this, this always frustrates me whenever Christians bring up Romans 13 and they're like, basically have this attitude of like, well, whatever the government does, we just got to go along with because Romans 13. Well, what is the government in America? The people, right? And the constitution, right? It's a piece of paper and it's a government by the people for the people in theory, right? In theory. Um, Whenever Paul says, obey the governor, right? And he speaks of it as a person. That's because that's the context that he's in. But we know really what he's saying, right? Is that you obey the, the governing structure, right? The, whatever the government is, you obey. So if a governor, right, goes against the constitution, I mean, not only civilly are we actually supposed to disobey that, like according to the Constitution, right? Or like you can think about the the military's vows to protect the uh, United States from enemies foreign and domestic, right? Um, And that the the whole reason the Constitution was set up was to – with checks and balances and stuff was to prevent a tyrannical government. If, if, if there's a governor in America, and I don't mean that in the sense of a state governor, just a person of authority within the government in America that's trying to overthrow the Constitution, it is going against Romans 13 to not disobey, right? So you saw this a lot with, with uh, COVID lockdowns. 
if churches decided on their own to shut down, that's fine, okay? If a church decided on its own accord, you know, we're going to shut down for a time because we think that's for the good of the people here, that's the church's decision. The government had no right to be able to tell a church to shut down. No right. That is, that is religious freedom 101, right? You can't tell me when to worship and when not to worship. You can't tell me how to administer the sacrament in my church. You can't tell me that. That's not in your authority. And that goes against the Constitution. And if I disobey that, I'm not, being, I'm not disobeying Romans 13. In fact, I'm following Romans 13. So, sorry, get off my high horse here. But um, that's my soapbox for the day. So, um, that's uh, government and citizens. Any questions on that? We're about at time. Garrison, Rod, you guys got anything? I mean, you're Declaration Center people, seriously. How should a Christian be then, kind of but under a governing system that is inherently moral or unjust? Yeah, um, I mean, we have biblical examples of that, too, that you have, like, the Israelites living in Egypt, um, and their ultimate goal is to leave, right? You have, uh, but maybe a better example is like Daniel and his crew uh, living in, in the diaspora in Babylon. And um, what do they do? Well, they continue to live there, right? And they, you know, on some level, they have to, sh- I'm sure they have to shop at the marketplaces and they got to partake in daily life as, as much as they have to in the world. But when it, there's, there's a line that's drawn whenever it causes them to sin, right? So bowing down before the golden Nebuchadnezzar, that's a cause of sin, right? And that's when they draw the line and say no, right? Whatever the consequences are. Could there be a situation in which showing loyalty to a government, even if it's not explicitly asking you to commit a sin personally, could still be considered an act of sin? I would say that's up to the conscience. So um, we should have good, informed consciences. And if someone's conscience is burdened by partaking in, in a certain government... Uh, then they should do what they can to avoid that, right? They should go with their conscience. Because in my point of view, yeah, I think that you know, if I'm in Nazi Germany, even if Nazi Germany isn't asking me specifically to do anything sinful, I think just by being loyal to that government, uh, I am committing an act of sin mm-hmm. by being a by being and loyal citizen too. Right. So, yeah, and and I think um, you got to get down to the brass tacks of like, what does it mean to be loyal? Okay, so what am I going to do with my life if I don't want to be loyal to them? Right. Um, am I going to actively plot against them, or am I just going to try and withdraw as much as possible? Um, these are harder questions, and. Um, so, uh, 
I, I'll give you kind of a practical example. Um, I once heard of a guy that because of abortion in America, he refused to pay taxes. And he's like, I'm not supporting a government that supports it. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, and he basically had this deal with the IRS that the IRS every year would come in and take furniture out of his house because he wouldn't pay his taxes. And he was like, that's great. You can persecute me. You can take my furniture, but I'm not paying taxes. Um, and that's how they, he lived his life. So... Bonhoeffer. Yeah, is it speaking out? Is it plotting against? I so that's where I say you go down to the individual conscience. Like, what is your conscience telling you that you need to do or not do, and then go with that. Yeah. Yeah, Bonhoeffer's got a pretty weird history, but anyway, yeah. Um, just, can, can, sorry, I bought the other files, but could, could you go to First Peter just, 2, yeah. 16, and just make a comment? Because I, well, I'll, I'll it, but I'll, yeah, go ahead. So You're good. It, it, that says, live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. And I think that's something that... Problem we've fallen into. They want a free country. They can do what they want. They, they, you can, you can use. We have because we have so much freedom in this country. It's like license to do what any, anybody, anybody wants. Yeah. But no. Right. I agree. <laughs> yeah, Garrison. Okay, so this may be not a good question for right now since we're about to end. But so what even? would make a governing authority a legitimate governing authority based on, I mean, do you have an answer to that? I mean, I know that, like, that's something that philosophers and Christian philosophers have talked about. Yeah, I mean, well, Paul just says, Paul, Paul kind of answers it and says, every governing authority is legit. Like, every governing authority is established by God. Um, but it's when... Yeah, I, it, it is a more complicated question. Is, so, yeah, go ahead. Obviously, I'm not saying that the words of the Bible are wrong. Right. But I think that, like, anytime I hear that preached about or talked about, I'm like, there needs to be way more clarification. Like that. Yeah, because well, I think... politics is a... It's really complicated. It's a yeah. messy, complicated thing. So that's why I kind of just boil it down to two things, is... Uh, so the government as a whole is established by God, right? So um, we're not anarchist, and we should have a government. And whatever government you inherit as being born in a certain place and time, um, that's the government you have. And the Bible doesn't give any um, certain... It doesn't say any certain form of government is is inherently wicked. Now, I think certain forms of government are inherently wicked, but the Bible doesn't say which ones, right? So, I mean, I think communism is inherently wicked, right? But um, it doesn't, you have to do the work in the Bible to show that. And that's when we focus on, okay, what is the government good for? If the government's given by God, what does he give it for, right? What's the purpose of the government? 
And that's where we get punished, preserve peace and punish wickedness. All right. And then from there, I think we can and kind of take that train out and say, okay, what is how is this government set up to preserve peace and how is it set up to punish wickedness? And then are, are we legitimately doing those things, right? Um, and, and if we're not doing those things uh, or if, if those things are being terrorized in some way, uh, then, then that's when we start to have problems, right? So, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question, but uh, that I think if we start with that basic definition of the government is given by God to preserve peace and to punish wickedness, we can go from there. All right. Um, so that's the fun society stuff. Uh, we'll get into families and employers and employees next week, I suppose. Um, and then eventually we'll we'll start something new. Does anyone have any um, Bible studies of request for when after we finish what we believe? You don't have to tell me now. Just um, I, I mean, I got ideas. I can talk about anything for a while, but, uh, well, well, if, if you have any ideas that you want to hear about, then we'll go with that. All right. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We pray that our worship today may be in spirit and in truth, and we pray that you may help us to live as uh, Christians, not being of the world, but being in the world. We pray this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, sounds good. Thank you. Is the equivalent of waiting tables uh, rolling the whiteboard around? <laughs>